A well-dressed woman lay on the ground, hands covering her face. A police officer leans over her, scowling, before landing his big black boot in her stomach. A man with a cloth cap and a shabby black trench coat watches, occasionally shouting either encouragement to the police officer or telling the woman to get back to the kitchen, or wherever else he thinks she really belongs. This woman was one of 300 suffragettes who marched on the Houses of the Parliament that day in 1910, demanding the right to vote. Although her photo made it onto the front page of the Daily Mirror, she was by no means the only one who had received such brutal treatment. Of the 135 demonstrators interviewed, almost all had either suffered or witnessed violence against women, with 29 statements giving details of sexual assault. That day became known as Black Friday and... Hold on, I'm sure most of you have heard this, or a story like it, about the suffragettes. Emmeline Pankhurst and her daughter Christabel, their organisation, the Women's Social and Political Union, chaining themselves to railings, smashing windows, the force feeding. You were probably taught it in school. The problem is, it's wrong. OK, so those things all did happen, but it is a very narrow view of what the movement was, who the women were and why they were even doing it. Today, we are setting the record straight. Welcome to Rebel Women, a podcast about history's troublemakers. I'm Esther Freeman. In this episode, we talk to the historian David Rosenberg to challenge our ideas about the campaign for female franchise and why women in East London were so important to the movement. So who exactly were the East London suffragettes and how did they come to be? The East London suffragettes were women who came together um, initially um, as part of the wider Women's Social and Political Union um, that had been formed in 1903 in Manchester and had started to uh, develop um, branches in London uh, from around 1905. And these these were women who wanted, you know, what what all suffragettes wanted at that time, which was um, the vote. Um, But as things developed, um, in a way, the... the, um, the East London suffragettes became um, something of a um, a particular group, uh, a kind of special group with uh, a particular um, vision. And um, I mean, it was true that, you know, a number of the early branches of the Women's Social Political Union in London were formed in East London areas. Um, so, sort of um, going out to West Ham, Canning Town, um, Stratford, Bow. These were these were some of the areas um, where they were particularly active. And um, but what was significant about them was their social class position, because when people think about the suffragette movement as a whole in Britain and in London in particular, um, a lot of the images in people's minds are of the West End suffragettes who were overwhelmingly middle and upper middle class, wealthy, educated, and most of the women that got involved in the East End of London um, were working class, doing ordinary working class jobs. And that also meant that their situation 
as, um, as, as women and as working class women, it meant that they had immediate struggles on their hands that they really needed to be dealt with in the here and now. That wasn't, that wasn't the same as the um, Women's Social Political Union activists in the West End who were prepared for a long fight and particularly channeled around um, the vote. Um, whereas in the East London suffragettes were kind of building a, a kind of wider agenda for women's equality that they needed because as well as the vote, they also needed, um, they also needed equal opportunities. They needed equal pay at work. They needed equal justice in, in society. And that was, uh, oh, now obviously having the vote would help with that, but, um, but that was a wider agenda that they had to address right at that moment. The Women's Social and Political Union was led by Emmeline Pankhurst and her eldest daughter Christabel. While her middle daughter Sylvia was originally involved too, her views did not always align with the rest of the families. This led to significant tensions. In 1913, um, one, of the, uh, one of the issues that was um, important in the minds of a lot of people in East London was what was happening a long way away in Dublin. Um, because there were a lot of Irish workers in London and particularly in the East End who followed events in Ireland very closely. And you had what was called the Dublin lockout in 1913, um, a dispute over trade union, trade union rights where workers were locked out from their industries and told that they could come back, but not if they're going to form trade unions. And there was a long ongoing struggle about this. And Sylvia Pankhurst was invited to speak at um, a meeting um, in support of uh, the workers in, in the Dublin, uh, during the Dublin lockout, a meeting in London. And, um, and she naturally accepted that because she supported that struggle and, and lots of progressive people were supporting that struggle. Um, but um, her elder sister, Christabel, and her mother, Emmeline, did not want her to speak at that meeting. And what's, uh, what's transpired, and she did speak at the meeting, and what's transpired is that at the same time as Sylvia Pankhurst was at that meeting, um, her elder sister and her mother were meeting with Ulster Unionists, uh, people at the opposite end of the Irish struggle who were making various promises about women's votes in, a, in, a, in, in Ulster. But, um, and sometime later, following that, she was invited to meet her sister and, uh, and her mother in Paris, where they had gone for some respite from being uh, harassed and arrested by the police for their suffrage activities they were getting involved in. And at that meeting, Sylvia Pankhurst was told to sever all connections between the East London suffragettes and the rest of the Women's Social and Political Union. After expulsion from the Women's Social and Political Union, Sylvia went directly to the East End and set up a campaign office in the former bakery in Bow. A talented artist, she painted Votes for Women on the shop front. Outside, she erected scaffolding where she would stand and give speeches. Both charismatic and a shrewd organiser, Sylvia changed the political landscape in East London. 
when Sylvia Pankhurst moved to the East End um, in, in 1912, I mean, her impact on the local movement was, was a very significant one. Um, although I think it's important to recognise that the movement as a whole in East London was, was carried by the much larger number of activists who were, who were, who were part of it in, in a day-to-day -day way. But what uh, Sylvia Pankhurst did do was bring quite a lot of uh, coherence and coordination um, to that movement. I mean, you had a number of branches before that before she moved to the area, um, but who engaged in quite localized work and not necessarily um, in touch with other local branches. And what she did was she brought them into a much more coherent, coordinated force that that was doing a lot of uh, activism um, together, as well as in their own most in their most local um, areas of, of their work. Many describe first wave feminism as a single issue movement around the right to vote. Yet a brief look at the work of the East London suffragettes shows it was far more than that. The creation of the Women's Hall on, um, um, on Old Ford Road, which was um, a, a venue in, in wartime particularly, it was a venue of a, of a cost price restaurant. Um, and they and the women, the East London Federation of Suffragettes, um, had a had a couple of other of these uh, cost price restaurants where women and and men as well could get um, some uh, food at cheap prices in a situation where food prices were um, were running high. But also the the Mother's Arms, the 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 pub that. Um, fallen into disrepair, the, the, the gun makers arms, which they took over and converted to the mother's arms, um, which where, where they had, um, it was a, a, a they had a, a health facility for, for young mothers and mothers about to give birth as well. And, um, and they also um, had a, a, um, a nursery there, which was run on uh, eventually a, a kind of small school run on Montessori school lines, but also the, um, the workshops they did. I mean, the, the, the most, um, the best known one is the toy factory um, that, um, that they created um, just around the back of uh, Roman Road, um, which was providing women with employment um, it was also, I believe, they had flexi time and it had a creche facility within the factory. It was a converted house um, into, a, into a factory, but it had a creche facility. Um, and, um, and so, you know, these, these were very sort of practical things that were helping relieve women's economic distress. Um, and it also meant that, uh, you know, that, that ordinary women in the area were having this daily contact with uh, initiatives of the um, East London suffragettes. The East London suffragettes were of course one of many local groups that emerged across the country. But it was Emmeline and Christabel's heroic efforts that won the vote. Except that version of the story misses out an important event in 1914 involving Prime Minister Herbert Asquith. Sylvia Pankhurst had written to Asquith um, demanding 
that he sees a delegation from the East London suffragettes. And Asquith's reply, well, the reply from Asquith's office um, was that he's already seen delegations of suffragettes. Um, then Sylvia Pankhurst says, well, but you haven't seen many, um, delega many delegations of working women. Um, and he has to acknowledge that is true, but he nevertheless says no. Uh, then um, Sylvia Pankhurst ups the ante by promising to march with the East London suffragettes up to Downing Street and up to Parliament and to chain herself to the railings of Parliament and go on hunger strike until death if he won't um, see a delegation. And that twists his arm and, uh, and he sees the delegation. And then what happens after that is that, well, how do you choose the delegation? How do you, how do you decide who's going to be part, part of it? And and here you saw a very significant difference between the, um, the, the, the leadership of the WSPU, uh, like Emmeline Pankhurst and others, and the East London suffragettes, because um, they actually held meeting, the, the East London suffragettes held a series of meetings in different areas, districts of the East End where their members were in order to democratically elect to um, to um, uh, delegates for in three different the three different meetings, uh, so they had six delegates who were you know who were working class women who were able to who were part of that delegation. Sylvia Pankhurst wasn't part of the delegation. Um, there were six women who were able to go to Asquith, spend an hour and a quarter with him, and actually tell the story of their lives as working class women in East London and get across to him uh, a point which he actually acknowledged by the end of the meeting that basically women's position was such that they that they would not be able to um, change things much for the better unless they were able to um, take part in the in the democratic process. And Asquith had been an opponent of the suffragettes. He'd kind of, he was kind of coming round to the idea that, well, at least some women maybe should have the vote. But by the end of that meeting, he was saying that it's clear if we're gonna do this, we're gonna have to do it in a thoroughly democratic way, i.e. that they bring in legislation that, 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 would, that would lead eventually to, to the wider, um, um, all, all women have it. All, all adult women um, having the vote. So they were kind of hopeful after that meeting um, that in the autumn um, of 1914 there would be legislation coming forward towards that. But then the war intervened. Um, but in that, but in that meeting, um, you know, women talked about things like being in. Um, mixed workplaces where the men had lunch breaks and the women didn't and the women were having to take their lunch and go off to the toilet and, and quickly have their lunch while they're while they're in while they're in the toilet you know and all you know the all the kind of indignities and just um mistreatment really that they experience they talked they talked also about um their experience on demonstrations where where they were, you know, facing um, harassment and beatings from 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 the police, um, and and yet they didn't have a vote, but the police who were dishing out those beatings did. Um, 
you know, they, 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 you know, they, there was a, one, the eldest woman in the, in the delegation um, gave, uh, gave Asquith a, a present. Um, they gave him a, um, um, a brush and she said she'd been making these in her workplace for the last 40 years or so and her conditions of work in terms of payments and hours had not changed in any significant way in the period in between and these brushes were selling for 10 shillings and sixpence and she got about tuppence um, for each one that she played a part in making you know so they were describing you know, exploitation and super exploitation at work, discrimination at work, um, just really, really difficult lives. Um, and in a way, getting across to um, a really significant politician, um, the things that needed to change in a way that some of the better off suffragettes could not, you know, could not do with the same um, authenticity, you know, in terms of in terms of representing the situation of of uh, the poorest women in society. When war broke out, the Women's Social and Political Union stopped all agitation and threw their energies into the war effort. Emmeline was even involved in the White Feather campaign, where these symbols of cowardice were handed out to seemingly able-bodied men who had not enlisted. Intended to publicly shame, there was never much consideration given to why a man had not signed up. It was not unheard of for a boy as young as 15 to rush off to the recruitment office after receiving these passive-aggressive tokens. Meanwhile, in East London, Sylvia doubled her efforts in the fight against class oppression. Male conscription forced employers to accept they needed women's labour. The government coordinated campaigns and recruitment drives and women responded to the call. However, their pay remained disproportionately low. In fact, wages were so meagre, factory owners would employ two to three women to replace the one man who'd left the war. The East London suffragettes began pressuring the government on equal pay. They marched to Whitehall and organised various deputations to land on governmental doorsteps. Meanwhile, Sylvia consumed herself with an impassioned letter-writing campaign to the Prime Minister. Then in 1918, the People's Representation Act finally granted some women the vote. After so many decades of campaigning, what finally won it for them? The activism, both of the East London suffragettes and the Women's Freedom League, through the war, through the war years, was, was significant. You know, there were there were um, marches and demonstrations. There were delegations to Parliament, delegations to um, specific um, ministers, and you know that 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 kind of continued pressure. Um, to to me, that you know that 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 shouldn't be kind of um, written out of history because a lot of the t for for a lot of the periods since the suffragette movement the the orthodox historiography was that it was the campaigning by the suffragette movement up to 1914 which was incredibly courageous and powerful um, plus the 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 patriotic uh, manner they showed during the war by you know bringing their activities down to a very low and quiet level um, that that this was it was presented as if it was some kind of reward for that and I, I just don't go along with that um, you know I, I, I think it was um, I think they were I think they the government was also responding to the continued activism that was taking place 
uh, on this issue. Um, and so, so I do think um, I do think this was um, significant. You know, I mean, it was, there were there were also um, wider changes going on in in East London in that period. Um, by um, a year after um, 1918, 1919, you had local elections and and uh, all the districts of the East End that now make up Tower Hamlet, Stepney, um, Bethel Green and Poplar went Labour for the first time. Um, the number of, uh, it's an interesting fact, that the number of trade union, trade unionists between 1914 and 19 and 1919 had, had doubled in the area. This was despite a lot of people going off to fight as well. Um, so things were, things were moving uh, on a number of fronts. And I think, um, and I think, Part of that was um, was the pressure for change for women's equality, not just for on the on the narrow political issue, but also a recognition of um, women's uh, economic lives. With the campaign for the vote no longer binding them, the divide in the women's movement grew. The last political act of Emmeline Pankhurst was she obtained a candidacy to stand for a parliamentary seat. It was a seat she never fought because she died before the next election came around. But it, and it was a seat in East London that Emmeline Pankhurst was going to fight for, um, but she was going to fight that for the Conservative Party. Um, and that was, you know, that's quite a long way from her where she initially stood. I mean, when the suffragette movement was formed in Manchester in 1903, the leaders of that movement, of which Emmeline Pankhurst was the preeminent leader, um, they were very close to the independent Labour Party, um, but they'd been, but her and particularly Christabel had been moving um, to the right through over, over, over the next um, 15, 20 years or so. Um, and in fact, in, 19, in, in 1918, the December 1918 election, um, Christabel Pankhurst stood for um, a parliamentary seat in the Midlands um, for a party calling itself the Women's Party. And the Conservative candidate in that constituency stood down to make way for her. Um, now, her manifesto included um, a number of very practical, progressive um, ideas about improving rights for women, um, but at the same time, was also it was also uh, replete with various right wing ideas like uh, abolishing trade unions, um, and so both of them, you know, both of them ended up um, kind of well, well to the well to the right of where they um, had stood previously. Um, so you know, to me, I mean, also part of that historiography that places Emmeline Pankhurst on a pedestal, and the and the preeminence of the Women's Social and Political Union. It's a historiography that, that sort of sees the suffragette struggle as the victorious struggle of a united movement, when the reality was, it was the victorious struggle of a very disunited movement that had, you know, that had, you know, significant um, divisions with, within it. So how should we remember first wave feminism? Um, to me, the starting point would, would be um, the wider inequalities of women that, that, that there were um, 
in the late 19th century and early 20th century. I mean, the, I mean, the first women who um, were fighting to challenge some of these inequalities were organizing in the 1860s. Um, um, there was a group called the Kensington Society um, who of fairly wealthy, uh, well-educated women who were starting to meet in the mid-1860s, um, looking, wanting to, uh, women to have some political, uh, political rights, but also looking at um, what uh, areas of society were closed off to them as well in terms of uh, work and education, education access. Um, and, and I think, you know, that, that movement of, from the 1860s um, was called the suffragist movement rather than the suffragette movement. The, the name suffragette was a, was a 1905 uh, invention. Um, and, uh, but it was a different kind of movement that, 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 that there was um, after the beginning of the 20th century. Um, the movement before, before the 20th century was concentrating uh, on constitutional methods, on education, lobbying, petitioning, marching, meetings, but, but no confrontation with the authorities. Um, and the effect of that, they raised a lot of consciousness among um, people in society, but didn't have any impact on government. Um, the, but I do think that in a way that that, that starting point, um, that, that women um, at the end of the 19th century were, um, they, they, they did not have political rights, they did, they, they, the, the justice system still discriminated against women in lots of ways. There had been some changes in the 1880s and 1890s around the Married Women's Property Act. Um, um, I, I mean, one. I mean, one case that I talk about. So I'm going for a bit of a tangent here, but but one case that I talk about when I do uh, walks of through that history, including walks of the earlier suffragette history, is about Millicent Fawcett, um, who is now who has now uh, broken into the um, the boys' club that is the um, Parliament Square statues. But um, but in the it was in the 18th. 70s I believe that um, there was an incident where she had uh, her wallet stolen um, and the person who who had stolen it ended up in a court case and in the court case um, the wallet um, that belonged to Millicent Fawcett um, was uh, described by the magistrate as the property of Mr Henry Fawcett because at that point um, married women did not exist as legal entities, um, and um, and after the case was was completed, um, she made the comment that she felt that she had been robbed twice. Um, so those yeah. <laughs> so those kinds of um, legal impediments and the way the justice you know issues of justice were really important. So um, yeah, so I think in in terms of ways it should be taught in schools I do think it, it, in a way it should start with kind of all the challenges around justice that that women faced and then look at if you like some of the movements that were tackling this and if you're doing that it you wouldn't just be dealing with uh, the suffragette movements 
um, in their diversity. You'd also be looking at women in the workplace, um, strikes by women, um, the strikes by the match women at the at the Bryant and May factory, strikes by um, strikes by women in 1911, the whole series of strikes in Bermondsey, um, in the food processing factories. Um, you know, the you know these were about challenging the discriminatory levels of pay um, that, 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 that existed um, at, at that time. So I think it's very important to, in a way, bring together um, economic as well as political struggles and place the development of the suffragette movement and its particular demands within that sort of wider social, political and economic agenda. us not only to the end of this episode but the end of our current series of rebel women if you would like to hear more from david why not go along to one of his walking tours which are run both virtually and in person new tours will be promoted on his website east end walks from the end of january you can do your own self-guided tour using his excellent book rebel footprints there is a chapter specifically on the east london suffragettes or if you're interested in really getting stuck into this fascinating history, why not take his online course, Activists Who Changed the East End, which is organised by the Bishopsgate Institute. Check out the show notes for links to all of David's work. We will be taking a break from the pod for a while, but still sharing stories of remarkable women via our social media. Catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Pinterest. You can find links in the show notes. In the meantime, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast to get notified when our next series of Rebel Women comes out. Rebel Women is part of the Women Activists of East London project, which has been developed by Share UK, a non-profit community group based in London. Special thanks to the William Morris Big Local for funding today's episode.